FM. The following program is in English. You're tuned in to L'Chaim, to life, with your host, Morris Klein, who just happens to be my baby brother. Shalom Aleichem, Shalom Aleichem, welcome to L'Chaim, to life, Jewish life, and more. And what a L'Chaim it promises to be. Last week, the focus was local here in Melbourne. So this week, we have another theme, which I am quite sure will become self-evident. Kicking off with Murray's guest, Dr. Bren Khalil, Director of Public Affairs at the Zionist Federation of Australia, with his new, very interesting book, which was launched last Sunday. I catch up with Nadia Matar, co-founder and co-president of the Women in Green Ribbonut Sovereignty Movement. Effie's back to take us on another tour in Israel, and David Schulberg has a dumb, dumb mythbuster. So this is it. I'm with the show. You're tuned into Lachaim, to life, Jewish life, and more on ninety-two point three FM, three triple Z. Take it away, Murray Frankel. Dr. Bren Carlyle is the director of public affairs at the Zionist Federation of Australia. He previously served as a Middle East researcher in the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade and the Department of Home Affairs, as well as being an advisor in federal politics. He grew up in Darwin, lived in Israel for six years, and is now a resident in Melbourne. Bren is the author of the very recently published book, The Challenges of Resolving the Israeli-Palestinian Dispute, which is the focus of our discussion. Bren, welcome to L'Chaim. Thank you very much. Good to be here. At the core of your book is the concept of the territorial existential dichotomy through which you examine the nature of the Israeli-Palestinian dispute from the period prior to the creation of the State of Israel through to the situation today. Could you explain to our audience what you mean by the territorial existential dichotomy and how it helps explain why the Israeli-Palestinian dispute appears intractable? Sure. When I was looking at the dispute, I realized that some of Israel's enemies will never be satisfied until Israel is destroyed. And so like it or not, Israel is fighting an existential conflict with these people. But I also know that that's not true of all of Israel's enemies, because there are many Palestinians who, you know, they're never going to be Zionists, but they will be satisfied with a Palestinian state alongside Israel. So what I realized is that some people are fighting to the death, if you like, and other people are fighting a conflict that might one day end up with a, a peaceful resolution. And so therefore, I realized that there's actually two conflicts, at least two conflicts or two types of conflicts involved. And then I looked at the Israeli side and I saw that in Israel, there's also territorialists and existentialists as well. So when I sort of stumbled across this concept, I started looking at the history of the dispute. I was looking at the choices that the actors have made in the dispute, and I realized a lot of it is about perception. It's not so much that there are territorial and existential conflicts, but, but it's how the actors perceive. Because if you perceive that your enemy is fighting an existential conflict against you, 
then your actions against that enemy will be different than if you perceive that your enemy is fighting a territorial conflict against you because the ones fighting an existential conflict against you will never stop until you have been destroyed. And so there is no point ever compromising with them. There is no point entering peace negotiations with them because they will use that to their advantage in order to destroy you. Mm. Whereas if you perceive that your enemies are territorialists, then your actions with them will be different. So that's sort of the start of the, the benefits of looking at the dispute through the prism of the dichotomy. You explore different time periods through this lens of the dichotomy, and there obviously isn't sufficient time here to look at the complete time span of the book. So perhaps you could summarise how you understand the period between the 67 and 73 wars in terms of the dichotomy, and so give the listeners a taste of what they can expect when they read the book. I find it's the most fascinating period in the entire history of the dispute. Basically, leading up to 67, Israel's enemies, and really the Palestinians weren't a factor in Israel's strategic calculations at that stage. So Israel's enemies were the Arab states, and they were fighting existential conflict against Israel. They wanted to destroy Israel. The 67 war started the process where those Arab states realized that they couldn't actually destroy Israel. Now, some of them started realizing that after 67, for some of them, it took the 1973 war to really realize that. But basically, after 1973, the Arab states basically gave up trying to destroy Israel. And over time, they became territorialists. They stopped fighting an existential conflict and they started fighting a territorial conflict. Now, that territorial conflict They didn't start it because they had this grand reconciliation with the concept of Jewish self-determination and they suddenly became Zionists. It's just because they grudgingly realized that, well, they can't destroy Israel. You might remember that after 1973, America started guaranteeing Israel's military superiority in, Mm. in the region. So they gave up. And over time, they grew to accept that Israel exists. And then, of course, in 2002, the Saudis produced its Arab Peace Initiative, I mean, I've got major problems with the initiative. It has a lot of flaws, but the point is they they suggested it. And then, of course, in more recent years, you've had the Abraham Accords, where particularly the UAE is not just grudgingly recognising the fact that Israel exists, but is embracing Israel through trade and tourism and investment and everything else. And so really, the process that began in 67 has really culminated now. So that's sort of on the grand scale of that side. But on the other side, on the Israeli side, it was really interesting as well, because Israel, the, the Labour Zionists, which, which formed Israel's government in its first 20-odd years, were territorialists. They realised that their enemies were fighting an existential conflict, that they were territorialists. However, when Israel gained the biblical heartland in the 1967 war, then suddenly existentialists in Israel, who were motivated by religion, God gave us this land, you know, no one else has a right to it. They started conditioning their support for the Israeli government on Israel retaining that land. Mm-hmm. And over time, the influence of existentialists within Israeli society grew. And that's been a process that has been going on for some time. And really, as a result of the failed peace process in the 1990s, what you've got now, what you've had really for the last 20, 25 years is almost the entire time you've had peace-skeptic Israelis, Israelis who are territorialists but just no longer trust the Palestinians, combined with existentialist Israelis who never want a Palestinian state, and they have been able to form a majority, and hence you've had the Netanyahu government or or really peace-skeptic governments in power since 1996 with a handful of years without them. 
you examine alternatives to the two-state solution and a couple of models of the one-state solution to the dispute, would any of these provide an acceptable outcome for both parties? You know, that, of all the chapters in my book, the chapter about the one-state solution was far and away the, the funnest to write because it's such a dumb idea. Um, <laughs> look, there's also the idea of a federation, either with just with the Palestinians or including the Jordanians and the Palestinians and the Israelis. The one-state solution is particularly dumb and it will result in a, in a civil war within a handful of years. But all of the alternatives to a negotiated two-state outcome will all fail, in my opinion, unless the existentialists are completely undermined. Because you can resolve territorial conflicts. You can't resolve the conflicts with existentialists. You have to win those conflicts or at the very least manage them. And existentialists will always try and undermine peace processes. And so any alternative, any outcome, whether it's a negotiated two-state outcome or a one-state outcome or or a federation, if the existentialists still exist in Israeli and Palestinian society, and I mean, they'll always exist, but unless they are a tiny minority, then they will undermine any territorialist outcome. So the short answer is that no alternative will work unless the existentialists are managed. Do you see any way that this can happen? I mean, they seem on both sides incredibly powerful and influential. Yeah, they are. Um, And particularly on the Palestinian side, if you look at great research institution, the uh, the Palestinian Centre for Policy and Survey Research, and they produce quarterly polls of the Palestinians and fabulous, fabulous insight into Palestinian society and what Palestinians want. And every now and then they will produce a poll. They'll ask a question that really goes to the heart of whether Palestinians are territorialists and existentialists. An example being you know, if Israel were to grant Palestinians everything they demand, full Israeli withdrawals to the 49 lines, full right of return, you know, Jerusalem's capital, mm. everything that the Palestinians yeah. demand, would you consider that to be an end of conflict with Israel? And about half the Palestinians say no. Even if we got everything we wanted, even if we got the right of return, which of course for Zionists means, you know, the end of Israel as a Jewish state, yeah. they're still not satisfied and they still want to continue the conflict. So that shows that notwithstanding the difficulties of negotiation in and of itself, what that shows is at least half the Palestinians are existentialists. Now, not half of Israelis are existentialists. It's a much smaller number, but still a significant number of the population. Look, there's a great analogy from the Northern Irish conflict. Now, that is not an existential conflict because the Irish Republicans never wanted to destroy the United Kingdom. They just wanted Great Britain out of Northern Ireland. However, in 1998, there was the Good Friday Agreement in March 98. Later that year, I think it was August that year, there was a big bomb that went off in Omar, which is a town in Northern Ireland, killed 29 people, of which about half were Catholic and about half were Protestant. Now, that was perpetrated by the, the real IRA, which was a, a breakaway group from the provisional IRA. The, the, the provisional IRA had been the main group and they had called a ceasefire. The real IRA wanted to undermine the peace process. They wanted to, they wanted to bring the conflict back. And there was outrage, outrage by Catholics in Northern Ireland and outrage by Protestants in Northern Ireland. It was wall-to-wall outrage by these people that were trying to undermine the peace process. And within days, this so-called real IRA declared their own ceasefire, and that was that. And that was really the last big attempt to undermine the Northern Irish peace process. Now, in Israel, and of course, Israel and the Palestinian areas, when you've got individuals that whether on grand violent scales or smaller less violent scales when you've got people that 
try to undermine the chance of peace. You don't get wall-to-wall societal outrage. So that indicates that the existentialists still have too much influence in order for a peace process to be successful. So I think we need to, first of all, build up the territorials on each side, and we need to undermine the existentialists on each side. And how that happens is obviously great difficulty, which is why the subtitle of my book is mm. An Impossible Peace. But it is possible, but I think it requires real determination on the Palestinian side, on the Israeli side, and also by, by, by the foreign community. And I know I'm a bit long-winded here, but no, a, difficulty, a difficulty that the Palestinians have, I think that the, the Fatah leadership with Mahmoud Abbas are territorialists. I think they're very grudgingly territorialists, um, but they're territorialists because they've given up on destroying Israel. But Palestinian society, as I said, at least half of them are not. And the, the leadership is too weak to try and tell Palestinians that they need to be territorialists. They're too weak to undermine Palestinian existentialists. And the fact that Palestinian territorialists, Fatah, are deeply corrupt and deeply hated. And as we've seen in the news, they keep on killing activists. They keep on arresting journalists. What they're doing is undermining their own legitimacy. In order for territorialist Palestinians to start promoting a peaceful message to their own side, then they need to have more legitimacy. They need to reduce their corruption. They need to reduce the dictatorial tendencies. And that's something that only they can do. Yes, the foreign community can prod them in that direction, but it's something that they need to do, I can't see that happening any time in the near future. So unfortunately, the, the short and, and midterm future is pretty bleak on the peace mm. You did mention the uh, Abraham Accords before. How do you see that influencing the Palestinian position? Well, I think it will hopefully lead more Palestinians to the grudging realisation that they should be territorialists because I think that they're seeing that the Arab world is leaving them behind. You know, for too long, the Arab world didn't have relations with Israel because of the Palestinians. But I think a, a newer pragmatic generation of Arab leadership are starting to realize that's holding their own countries back. And so they wanted to have relations with Israel for their own benefits. And of course, the fact that Iran is a common enemy for pretty much everyone in the Middle East yeah. is another reason why they have been willing to sidestep the Palestinians and forge relations with Israel. I think if I was a Palestinian leader, I would look around the region and say, look, Arab solidarity is not working anymore. We are at risk of being left further behind. And so really, we need to get on the normalization train. Unfortunately, pragmatism hasn't been the Palestinian strong suit over the decades. But, you know, I hope it, I hope it kicks in. Well, we can only hope, as you said before, that uh, it is fairly bleak, the outlook. Dr. Bren Carlyle, Director of Public Affairs at the Zionist Federation of Australia and author of The Challenges of Resolving the Israeli-Palestinian Dispute, thank you for providing us with a very interesting and thought-provoking analysis of this seemingly never-ending conflict. Bren's book is available online But uh, if you're interested, uh, you could also contact him at the ZFA. Thank you, Bryn. Very much appreciated. It was my pleasure. Thank you. I heard there was a secret chord that David played and it pleased the Lord. But you don't really care for music. Do you? Well, it goes like this the fourth, the fifth, the minor fall, and the major lift, the baffled king composing. Hallelujah! Hallelujah!
Wow, how stunning and powerful was that? We've played Hallelujah previously on Lachaim, which was a beautiful duet performance from the talent show Hakochav Haba, The Next Star, which, like tonight, was also sung in English, Hebrew and Arabic. Tonight's Hallelujah is performed by many in support of the United Hatzalah of Israel's Coronavirus Emergency Response Fund, saving lives every day regardless of race, religion or language. You can donate at www.israelrescue.org forward slash saving lives. And by the way, check out the YouTube clip. As you should, Maury's guest Bren Khalil's new book, The Challenges of Resolving the Israeli-Palestinian Dispute. My opinion, the existentialists still far outnumber and have more 
corrupt power than the territorialists. We are all going to need to strap ourselves in for the ongoing roller coaster ride. A grand plan could bring half a million Jews to move to Israel. For Israel News Talk Radio, I'm Mordechai Schenker. Aliyah organization Nefesh Benefesh cutting the ribbon on an entire campus designed around state-of-the-art efforts to welcome home Olim, immigrants to Israel. President of Israel Isaac Herzog there saying we can bring in 100,000 Olim each year if we want to, half a million within five years. And that the process of moving on up to Israel, Aliyah, nowadays requires something else. In many ways, it needs to be customized. This marking 20 years since Nefesh Benefesh opened, President Herzog saying the growth of Nefesh is connected to Aliyah from all over the world, of course also from the United States. The campus is in the government section of Jerusalem, has several indoor and outdoor spaces for many different Aliyah-related types of events, a large conference hall, even a multimedia center. A new caucus starting in the Knesset also looking toward Jewish people not yet in Israel, the Caucus for the Jewish People. To coordinate diaspora Jewry situations with the Knesset, it has 64 Knesset members. It's the largest caucus in the Knesset, members from both the right and the left. It even plans to bring issues from the Jewish world abroad to put them on the Knesset agenda. One such issue, Interior Minister Ayelet Shaked paying attention to, even before the new caucus, anti-Semitism on American college campuses. She sees it's getting worse. Shaked in New York, meeting with World Jewish Congress leaders, saying she hears young Jews trying to get into universities are ashamed to say they support Israel and that Israel needs to equip young people on campuses with content and facts to fight for the justice of the Israeli way and to fend off boycott Israel blood libels. Israel practicing defending our people here from a dirty bomb, meaning a radioactive material dispersing bomb, large-scale exercise now in Jerusalem to simulate a terrorist attack using a radiological device. It's at the large Teddy Stadium, an adjacent Pais Arena complex. That's where pro basketball games are played in Jerusalem. Many high-level sports are practiced near there, next to the South African tennis complex, where a temporary ice rink is in some years opened in the summer. So heavy military traffic and presence in the city for many hours today. Israel doing many drills these months. Last month, a five-day drill simulating full-scale war with Hezbollah up north. If Israel does strike and damage Iran's nuclear weapons program, Hezbollah likely would retaliate. Iran gives a lot of money in technical training and support to Hezbollah and to Hamas. Some military officials here think Hezbollah is the second most serious threat to Israel after Iran. The United Arab List, which is in the coalition, or joining the coalition, the United Arab List received 30 billion with a B shekels in budget over five years. That's roughly nine billion dollars with a B. But that didn't necessarily buy their votes. The Arab List demanding Israel pass the electricity law, or they'll stop voting together with the coalition on other matters. The coalition's barely a majority with those Arab List votes, so the government would have trouble passing anything into law. The electricity law starts hooking up to the electric grid illegally built Arab homes and illegally built Bedouin homes, but not illegally built Jewish homes. It passed its first reading the end of last month because the United Arab List threatened to stop the budget from passing, which would have brought down this coalition. Finance Minister Victor Lieberman from the relatively right-wing but anti-religious Israel Our Home Party now claiming to Radio 103 the government could survive this 
United Arab List ultimatum and continue to function, that we knew going in there were fundamental different positions among the different member parties. Unclear whether he means, yes, voting to pass the law. He also says the coalition could even survive going to war against Hamas. Quick good news continuing about the CCP coronavirus in Israel, down to 134 serious cases from 145 last count. Only about two-thirds of citizens here are vaccinated at this point. I'm Mordechai Schenker, Israel News Talk Radio. The news from Israel is courtesy of INTR, Israel News Talk Radio. Listen online to more straight talk from Israel at israelnewstalkradio.com. The Six-Day War. The Jewish people returned to the heart of Jerusalem, to the heartland of Israel, and to the Golan Heights. Along with the opening of the Jewish heart toward the land of Israel, the battle over Israeli consciousness also begins. Two camps confront each other, right versus left. The right establishes the Gush Emunim movement. The objective, the renewal of Jewish settlement in Judea and Samaria. On the other side, the left establishes the Peace Now movement. The objective, to internalize the consciousness of land for peace. The settlement enterprise establishes facts on the ground. The left demands recognition of the PLO as a representative of the Palestinians and the right to an independent state in the heartland of Israel. The uprooting of the Amit region reinforces the principle according to which uprooting of settlements and the transfer of territory is indeed possible. The left celebrates. The right understands that even facts on the ground are not necessarily irreversible. It turns out that even demonstrations don't help. But the settlement movement continues to establish facts on the ground. 1993, the Rabin government initiates a series of dramatic steps vis-a-vis the Arab leadership. Recognition of the PLO and the Oslo Accords establishes a new political reality. The right again goes out and demonstrates, but the caravan of the left continues energetically. In European drawing rooms, Yossi Beiling and his people promote a political philosophy of Israeli withdrawals. The cries of the right are drowned out in the background. Nevertheless, and despite everything, the settlement enterprise continues. But then the right observes of blow. 21 Gush Katif communities are uprooted and destroyed. The IDF withdraws and the gate to the Gaza Strip is locked. And that is not the end. The right understands. Demonstrations and proclaiming what not to do is not enough. It is necessary to promote an active political program. A sovereignty initiative founded by Women in Green is launched. The peace plan of the left has proven to be a delusional plan. The Arab lie has been exposed for all to see. The idea of an Arab terrorist state in the heartland of Israel is collapsing and vanishing. The right is launching a sovereignty offensive. The objective? True, long-term peace. Historic justice, return to Zionist and Jewish values, responsibility for the security of Israeli citizens in the exclusive hands of Israel, regional stability without an additional Arab terrorist state, a robust economy, and even a decline in housing prices in the center of the country. Sovereignty conferences, steps towards sovereignty in the Knesset and in the public, cooperation between sovereignty initiatives, promoting sovereignty in Bikat Yerdin, promoting sovereignty in Gush Etzion, equalizing legislation between the Judea and Samaria, and the rest of the state of Israel, and more. Sovereignty is gaining momentum. The sovereignty revolution is just beginning. The people and the leadership already understand the significance of Israeli sovereignty in the heartland of Israel. What is required now is implementation of the initiative in legislation and in action. It will only happen if each and every one of us will provide public backing for the decision makers in the Knesset and the government. It is in our hands.
I'm quite sure that our Lechaim listeners would be well aware that the Biden administration in the US is desperately trying to undermine all the great initiatives, work and achievements of President Donald Trump at home in the US and in the Middle East, and especially when it comes to Israel. The pathetic, false Biden administration is proposing to open a US-Palestinian consulate in Jerusalem, to which the majority of Israelis are firmly opposed. One organization that is leading the way in the opposition to the hostile proposition of a U.S.-Palestinian consulate in Jerusalem is Rivanut, the sovereignty movement. And joining us tonight on L'Chaim is Nadia Matar, co-founder and co-president of the Women in Green Rivanut Sovereignty Movement. Nadia, welcome to L'Chaim, to life, Jewish life and more. Thank you. Shalom. Good evening to all of you. Nadia, you and I spoke on air a few years back. You live in Efrat, which is 12 kilometres south of Jerusalem between Bethlehem and Hebron. We have just played some of the excellent Sovereignty Chess YouTube clip as an introduction to our interview with you tonight. I exhort everyone to check out the clip. Nadia, our focus tonight is going to be about what Ribbonut has organised the past few weeks. Before we get on to that, could you please tell our Lechaim listeners in your own words what the Women in Green Ribbonut Sovereignty Movement is all about? Thank you. Uh, In 1993, when the Oslo agreements were uh, signed, unfortunately, with the mass murderer Yasser Arafat, and we realized that the Israeli government uh, is giving parts away of our homeland to him and is creating a terrorist entity called the Palestinian Authority, giving them land, giving them weapons, we understood that we cannot stay at home quietly. And my mother-in-law of blessed memory, Ruth Matar founded the Women for Israel's Tomorrow, which with the clear message that if we want to have a tomorrow, we have to keep our homeland, which, as we remember, is very, very small already with Judea and Samaria. And when we uh, started demonstrating against the Oslo agreements, when we realized they want to shrink us back to the green line, the pre-67 borders, we were dressing then at the time with green hats and they labeled us the women in green. That is how we adopted our nickname. But then in 2005, we failed in preventing the expulsion from Gush Katif. And I met an incredible person, Yehudit Katsover, one of the pioneers of the renewed Jewish settlement in Hebron. And uh, together, when my in-laws uh, stopped uh, being in Women in Green because of health reasons, we joined uh, to get forces together and prom- continue to promote the fact, the very motto that this, this land belongs to us. We have no right to give it away. But not this time with demonstrations. We understood that the right wing for so many years keeps on saying no. The left wing has a plan, which we oppose, the two-state solution, they call it, which we know is committing suicide. But the right wing for up till 2011 was constantly saying, saying no, no to a Palestinian state, no to give them weapons, no to talk to terrorists. What is our yes? What do we want? And that is when we realized that we have to raise the flag of the message of the right-wing national camp, those who believe that this is our land, which is what should have been done the day we won in the Six-Day War, the application of Israeli sovereignty over the land of Israel. And thanks to many activities over the years since 2011, we finally put on the table that the right-wing also has a plan. There's two plans. Thank God, with a lot of work and a lot of uh, support and a lot of different people involved, not only us, we basically brought sovereignty all the way to the White House. Unfortunately, uh, the plan, the Trump plan, we opposed it because we are against 30% sovereignty and 70% Palestinian state. But the idea of sovereignty came onto the table. That is the background. 
Nadia, for the past few weeks, the sovereign movement has been at the forefront conducting vigil protest outside the building to the proposed US-Palestinian consulate in Agron Street, Yerushalayim. It's been reported around the world, even the very hostile to Israel CNN has reported on protests. The White House is not happy, the Islamic elements are not happy with the rallies. Please take us through this and how it's all been going. So, you know, when a war starts with a siren and with bombing and planes and uh, cannons and tanks, then the people get united. First, you get scared, but you get united against the enemy. But there's another kind of a war which starts with a sound of silence. And it is the war of consciousness that brings upon terrible actions lately if you stay quiet. These days, Israel, there's a battle for Jerusalem. And we are in the middle of a war in Jerusalem. And it is a war that is difficult to identify because there's no shelling by tanks and there's no cannons or bombing. But if we continue to close our eyes, we may, God forbid, awaken to a reality in which the heart of the Jewish people, its eternal capital, Jerusalem, is no longer in our hands, God forbid. When we heard that President Biden plans on reopening the consulate in Jerusalem for the Palestinians, we understood what it meant. They're trying to tell the world that it's nothing, it's just consular services, but which is not true. There is embassy, an American embassy in Jerusalem that gives all the services needed. So when we understood what they want to do to reopen that consulate, it meant the establishment of an American consulate in Jerusalem for the Palestinian Authority is a de facto partition of Jerusalem and transform it, God forbid, into the capital of what they want, the Biden administration, the the radical leftist administration of Biden. They want to turn it into the capital of a Palestinian state. When we heard that, we together with 20 organizations jumped into the water and said, we cannot be quiet. We have to start protesting against it. We have to wake up the people to the dangers. And that is what we did for three weeks in a row with rallies to, again, 20 extra parliamentary organizations that represent the majority of the Jewish people. If there is one thing that we still are united about is that the overwhelming majority of the Jewish people in Israel and abroad, all the governments of Israel, that Jerusalem united and undivided is the capital and the only capital of the state of Israel. And uh, thank God uh, we had two demands during those vigils. The first demand was that the government of Israel would make a clear statement about it, that they opposed the opening of the consulate after the budget here in Israel. And the second demand was, of course, from Biden, keep your hands off Jerusalem. Last Saturday night, we received the first demand, meaning when Prime Minister Naftali Bennett and Foreign Minister Yair Lapid both declared at a press conference with no uncertain terms that Israel will not agree to the opening of the consulate, we understood that we reached a first success. The second part now is, of course, to make clear to the American administration, keep your hands off Jerusalem. And therefore, we stopped the weekly rallies in Jerusalem. And now we're going to focus our activities in America and abroad, showing them that it's against the Israeli law, against Israeli people. And if anybody who wants to call himself a real friend of Israel has to respect the law of Israel and has to respect the will of the overwhelming majorities of the Israelis and of all Israeli governments. And we are focusing on America. We already have a little video of one of the congressmen who uh, came out, Congressman Andrew Garbarino, came out against President Biden's intention to open the consulate. And we're going to, please God, sweep the public opinion against it so that they will understand that nobody touches Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the undivided, uh, united capital of the Jewish people 
of Israel. Oh, mate, absolutely. Nadia, if any of our Lechaim listeners here in Australia and overseas would like to support your great work and the work of Ribbonut, what can they do? They can contact us and we'll talk more because I know on radio show we can't uh, go at length. But uh, we would love to speak to people who want to join and help. And everybody can do different things. We need to spread our message on Facebook, on Twitter, on on social media. We need to open chapters of sovereignty all around uh, the world. Because the message is we're not doing this only for us. We have to remember that the Arabs, their main slogan here in the Middle East is first the Saturday people, then the Sunday people. First, we'll get rid of Israel and then we'll get rid of the other religions. It's a much bigger war. The reason we need sovereignty and that it should uh, attract not only the Jewish people, but also all the Gentiles, all the people who want to continue and believe in the biblical uh, values of the the Western values is that Israel is basically the little boy uh, holding the entire front here for the Western civilization. And the only way we will keep our values is by keeping a strong Israel. And Israel will only be strong if we stay in all of Judea and Samaria between the sea and the Jordan River. Therefore, we call upon anyone who wants to help us to come to our website, ribonut.co.il or the Women in Green website, contact us and tell us how you can help. And of course, I won't hide it. Everything we do is also very expensive. Anybody who wants to be partners also in uh, the expenses is invited to. But before, let's make a contact and let's see how we can spread the message of sovereignty also to Australia. Nadia, I'd like to invite you back early sometime next year to talk about uh, the Osvagon Nature Reserve. It's a wonderful uh, project that uh, has been going for a number of years. We'll have you on sometime next year. So Nadia Matar, co-founder and co-president of the Women in Green Ribbonut Sovereignty Movement, along with your co-founder and co-president, Yehudit Katsova. Thank you very much for joining us on Lachayim to Life, Jewish Life and More, with your very, very important work for Medinat Yisrael. Much continued success to you and Team Ribbonut. Yasha Koyach to everyone. Thank you very much, Lachayim, for the sake of Israel's sovereignty. Amen. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave and ancient land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains Then I see a land Where children can run free So take my hand And walk this land with me And walk this lovely land with me Though I am just a man When you are by my side With the help of God 
never tire of listening to Andy Williams singing the beautiful Exodus. I love it as I love Israel. And what can you say about Nadia Matar and the Women in Green Ribbonut Sovereignty Movement? Only Yasha Koyach to them all. Please take down their website details and get behind them and support them. The website is www.ribonut.co.il Nadia mentioned that their protest vigils outside the proposed U.S. consulate in Jerusalem had the support of over 20 Zionist organizations. I'd like to read something out from one that I have a close association with, the Israel Institute for Strategic Studies. No, you can't. The Israel Institute for Strategic Studies stands with other proactive Zionist organizations in opposing attempts by the U.S. Biden administration to drive a stake into the heart of Jerusalem by insisting on opening a consulate to serve non-Israel entities in Israel's united capital, Jerusalem. There is no diplomatic precedent of the United States intentionally imposing an official State Department facility inside the sovereign capital of another nation in order to serve the interests of a foreign entity, let alone one that declares itself to be an enemy of Israel and explicitly calls for our destruction. We say no to the opening of a US consulate for the Palestinian Authority in Jerusalem. Such an act would place the United States in direct opposition to the wishes of the State of Israel and in support of an entity that regularly and repeatedly perpetuates brutal and bloody terror against Israel, including in Jerusalem. No, you can't. Dr. Martin Sherman, founder and director... Barry Shaw, International Public Diplomacy Director of the Israel Institute for Strategic Studies. What a great statement. Firebrand Barry Shaw has been a guest of mine on air many, many times. He's written several books about Israel, as has Dr. Martin Sherman. Barry will be our guest on Lachaim late December to close out our Lachaim year. Right, time for us to head over to Israel. You're listening to Lachaim, Two Life, Jewish Life and More, here on 92.3 FM, 3 Z. Let's go check out some more of Israel with our radio tour guide, Effie Kobe. 
for an unforgettable experience. Explore Israel with Effie. Allow me to take you on a journey back into time and see history unfold before your eyes. Effie Yacobi, Shalom Aleichem. Welcome back to Lechaim. Good to have you back. Shalom, Shalom. Erev Tov, Chavarim, from Effie here in Eretz Israel. Effie, another terrific announcement yesterday from the Israel's Antiquity Authority that coincides with Hanukkah just around the corner. Correct, correct. A fortress or part of a fortress dated back to the exact time when the Seleucids were here, when the Greek Empire was here, and during the revolt of the Hashmonaim, exactly in the area where the seven battles took place, a huge tower, plenty of coins dated to that period, arrowheads, so they knew battles had taken place here for sure, and it fits exactly the time element of the Hashmonaim revolt against the Greek Empire. So another stamp that simply says, you know, guys, these things occurred. It wasn't just some folklore legend that we made up in order to say that we were here 2,000 years ago. We were here 2,000 years ago, and this is ample proof that it actually happened. So phenomenal discovery. Not open yet to the public, but it will be. Great stuff, great news. We were here and we're still here. The stories of the Maccabees are coming to life before our eyes. Where are you taking us today? Ken, shalom, shalom, hi. Okay, guys, let's go explore Israel with Effie on 92.3 FM, 3 triple Z, L'chaim for life. We're still up in the north, so we're heading to Chushatal, a great little area, because again, if we're looking for spare for great places, this is one of the best as well, because it engages the kids, plenty of picnic area, playgrounds, little pools but a lot of history attached to it. So, Khushat Tal, Khushat Tal, location on Route 99 between Kriyat Shmona and Masadeh, near Kibbutz Dafna. Best season, all year round, two hours minimum, up to a full day if you want to engage the kids in many activities around it. Small interest fee, but again, worth it. So, guys, there's a story here. According to a legend, 10 friends of the Prophet Muhammad rode north until nightfall, where they found themselves not far from Nachaldan, one of the sources of the Jordan. They stuck their sticks into the ground in order to tie their horses to them. The sticks took root and grew into large trees, which became known till this day as the Grove of the Ten. Today, the grove obviously far exceeds the original ten trees in the legend. The Hebrew name is Choshat Tal, the Jew Grove, D-E. W, which draws upon again from the biblical verse in Psalms 133, sentence 3, as the Jew of the Hermon that descended upon the mountains of Zion. Various rivulets constituting branches of the Nachaldan flow through this park. Pools have been constructed as well as various sports facilities. Grass has been planted and additional shrubbery and landscaping have been added to the native vegetation. On the grassy plots, there is room for 150 tents for overnight campers. There are also 50 bungalows and guest rooms, as well as picnic sites. Most of the trees in the grove are tabor oak. Additional trees were planted in the National Park, many not native to the country. These trees are hundreds of years old, and they've been spared harm because they're considered as sacred. Popular belief holds that anyone who damages a sacred tree will be severely punished by heaven. This grove is one of the remaining woods from the large forest of Tabor Oaks that once populated the whole area west of the Jordan. Several blocks only survive from this great forest where there are many other sacred trees. So if you're into tree hugging, guys, these are the best thing to do. Believe me, you'll get a blessing each time you do it. 
The Hebrew words for the oak and terebinth are alon and elah. Elah, respectively, the prefix el is the god in Hebrew and thus points to the sacred association between these two trees. The additional factor should be noted, dead branches fall from the elderly trees. At the location where the branch joins the trunk, these species exhibit a self-renewing capacity of their tissue, and the small area where the break occurs often appears in the observer's interpretation as the facial image of a man. So it's a great way to engage the kids, get them to use their imagination. What do you think it looks like? But a lot of flowers blossom here, many known species of orchids. Beautiful during spring, a massive color. Just outside the park, kayaking at Far Bloom on the Jordan River with additional attractions such as bicycle routes, cheap tours, pony rides for the kiddies, snappling park, archery range, an artificial mountain climbing wall and many other recreation activities. The Jordan River promenade is next to it. This is a paved and floodlit promenade along the eastern bank of the Jordan between Kibbutz Far Bloom and Kibbutz Amir. Right next to it is Deinachemia. And this is in the northern edge of the Hula Valley with a great exhibit of reptiles and a rich display of animal life. So, guys, what do you need more than that? You're looking for something to go up north to do with the kiddies as many other places. Do yourself a favor. Pop into Fushat Tal for a great day of activities. Well, that's all from me from Effie here in Eretz Israel. Until next week, when we once again explore Israel with Effie on 92.3 FM, 3 triple Z. Shalom, shalom, chavarim. Take care. All the best. Terrific. Outstanding, Effie. Thanks, mate. Catch you next week. For sure. Take care. Welcome to the Mythbusters. Just the facts, man. And the reality is that Muhammad, when he was killed, he's in his own home village in Nabi Saleh. But she gets shot with an exploding round of dum-dum. Yeah, and I mean, you wonder, it's kind of rhetorical, but it, will there be any, I mean, is anybody going to investigate? I mean, is there going to be charges? Well, if Bas got anything to do with it, no chance. And you go, no, there isn't. I mean, there isn't. You, you, you shoot a human being and kill them, let them die in the street and just drive off. And it's legal, perfectly legal. These guys are just killers and it's fine. They have a gun, they've got a license to kill, and they know that no one's ever going to charge them. Dum-dums under international law are obviously illegal as well. You're not allowed to use them, but it's just another level that they, they use. Oh, oh, yeah. Audio 3CR. 3CR Radio has a program called Palestine Remembered, which is little more than an excuse for bashing Israel, using whatever story that can be mustered, and whether it is true or not doesn't seem to matter. In the clip you just heard, the two regulars on this program were corroborating with anti-Israel activist Nico Peled about how brutally the IDF treats the Palestinians. A favourite kind of guest invited frequently to speak on this anti-Israel hate fest is a Jew who happens to support the Palestinian cause. Somehow the host of the show thinks he will get his message across better if he is assisted by a self-hating Jew. Nico Peled the wayward son of an Israeli general doesn't hesitate to equate Israel with Nazi Germany and frequently shares posts with unequivocal anti-Semites on social media. When part-time on the show, Robert Martin uttered the accusation against the IDF that it willfully uses dum-dum bullets against Palestinians, he points out that dum-dum bullets were banned already in the first Hague Conventions of 1899, because of their capability to expand or flatten inside the human body. Of course, Israelophobes are quick to jump to claims 
that Israel is in breach of international law. That is one of their favourite ways of delegitimizing and demonizing Israel. Resorting to outright lies, which are repeated over and over, is a favourite tactic of exponents of propaganda. Repeat a lie often enough and it becomes a truth. Is a law of propaganda often attributed to Nazi Joseph Goebbels. The apartheid analogy is a case in point. Listeners bothered by the falsities that one hears week after week on Palestine Remembered are exhorted to send a complaint to 3CR management, who will do whatever they can to rebuff it. However, it is important that 3CR is made aware that there are people listening who don't accept their ongoing malevolent agenda of resorting to lies and propaganda to demean Israel week after week. When there is not even a grain of truth in what they say, like in this case where Israel is accused of using weaponry against Palestinians that is inhumane and illegal under international law, the presenters of Palestine Remembered should be called out for spreading malicious lies that only help motivate anti-Semites who might be listening. This Mythbuster is by David Zulberg from the Israel Connection Programme that listeners can listen to on J-Air, broadcasting live each week on Wednesdays from 4 to 5 p.m. and repeated Fridays 1 till 2 p.m. Well done, David Shulbu, with another excellent Mythbuster. Team Palestine remembers and Nico Pellet can shove their dum-dums up their collective dum-dum tuchuses. And now for headlines from tomorrow's Australian Jewish News, the voice of Australia's Jewish community. ABC complaints in the spotlight. Vaccination plea following Jewish COVID deaths. TBI launches plagiarism review as Lazaro returns to work. Guy announces lib adoption of IHRA. Janonde honoured with JCCV Monash Award. Hanukkah set to light up CBD. Israeli couple held in Turkey on suspicion of spying. Miss South Africa snubs government call to boycott Miss Universe contest in Israel. Three arrested over Jewish book burning in Poland. French Shoah survivors murderer sentenced. To read more coverage of local, federal and international news, opinion, arts, lifestyle and sport, pick up your copy of the Australian Jewish News from newsagents and supermarkets in southeast of Melbourne or for weekly home delivery, subscribe at subscribe.jewishnews.net.au. Have you heard the news? What did it say? I am quite sure our listeners worked out the theme of tonight's Lachaim with two excellent guests, the ZFA's Brent Khalil with his new book, and Nadia Matar in Efrat with the Ribbonwood Sovereignty Movement, along with our regulars Effie Kobe and David Schulberg. Israel, of course, which it is more often than not. Now, a reminder, our guest last week was Judy Fagland, founder and president of Mitzvah Day Australia. Mitzvah Day is happening this Sunday, November 21st. So please give thought to getting involved for a few hours and check out the Mitzvah Day website, www.mitzvahday.org.au or the Mitzvah Day Facebook page 
to see what projects you can join and participate in some community activity and fun making a difference. This is hot off the press. Well, actually, Facebook yesterday. The JNF Australia are thrilled to announce that registrations are open for their mission to Israel next year. To be first to find out more information, register your interest at www.jnf.org.au forward slash mission 2022. Visit Israel with the JNF October 21st to November 1st, 2022. The Australian Jewish Association's guest tonight, immediately preceding Lachaim, was Lauren Isaacs, National Director of Harut Canada. She's a popular speaker in Canada and in Israel, and tonight was her first address to an Australian audience. Lauren was recently arrested on Hahobayat, Temple Mount, for the crime of displaying the flag of Israel. I'll be checking out the YouTube recording when it gets posted tomorrow. The AJA's guest next week is American author Michael Myerson with his book, Are Jews Really Not Good at Sport? All the information's on the AJA's Facebook page. Check it out. Right, you'll find in about 15 minutes to half an hour a recording of tonight's Lachaim program at 3zzz.com.au. Click on the down arrow in the Listen to a Show Square and scroll down to the Jewish group. You'll find it there. Links to YouTube recordings of tonight's interviews will be posted to the Lachaim and Morris Klein Facebook pages tomorrow. Lachaim podcasts are also available at JWire, Digital Jewish News Daily for Australia and New Zealand. Please check out the other two programs that make up the Jewish group here at 3ZZZ. The Hebrew Hour, Shabbat Shalom, 3pm on Friday, and the Yiddish Hour, 11am on Sunday. If you'd like to contact us here at Lachaim, our email is lchaim3zzz at gmail.com. For only $16, please consider becoming a member of the Jewish group here at 3ZZZ. And for seniors, it's just $11. Again, click on 3zzz.com.au. Many thanks again to Team Lachaim, Dr. George Banky, the executive producer, Dr. Mori Frankel, and Jeff Deegan. So thank you for tuning in, and please join us again next week on Lachaim. My name is Morris Klein. I'm Yisrael Chai, and peace. Eins, zwei, drei, vier. Es gewinn a schwere Tage dicke Nacht. Ich hab gearbeitet wie a Hund. Es gewinn a schwere Tage dicke Nacht. Ich darf schon schlafen ganz gesund. Ich komme heim zu dir, das war zu tut's bei mir. You know I feel alright. Du weißt, ich arbeit alle Tag. Sie machen Geld, sie kauft die Tschatschkis. Is a machaya benicher. Du bist mein Ehr und engst gezatzke. Ich komme heim zu dir, das war zu tot's bei mir. You're not alright. In der Heim, alles things is a soi fein. In der Heim, lebe dich freilich sein. Es gibt wenn a schwere Tage dicke Nacht.
Yeah, no, I feel alright. 